Hey everyone, you're listening to an Acts Church sermon. If you have not heard of us before, you can check us out at www.axcamus.org or come check us out on a Sunday. All right, here is the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. Some of you know Pastor Dave. Uh, He welcomed you earlier in the service. He's one of the 15 David Robinsons at this church, but the only one that I'm related to. Uh, The other one is not here right now, but he's the one who has the art out on the wall out there. And uh, then you got David Robinson, my dad, then you got David Robinson, me. Uh, But anyway, he's the guy who was up here. He's like a older, better looking version of me, Um, or at least that's what he tells me. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. All right. (laughs) Yeah, it's the only amen I heard, Dad, so... uh, I, oh, come on. I grew up in, in his home, and he has been a pastor since I was very little. I was little at one time. Um, and from time to time, my dad would embarrass me. He would embarrass me. Uh, a lot of, sometimes he'd embarrass me on purpose, you know, picking his nose in front of my friends, things like that. Other times, I was embarrassed mostly because at a certain age, everything my parents did embarrassed me. I don't know if you ever went through that phase, but I did uh, because I had a lack of foresight um, about what's really embarrassing and what's not. But um, he would embarrass me sometimes. He would punish me, if you can believe that, when I did things that were wrong, uh, which was not that uncommon. And I didn't, I didn't like being embarrassed, and I didn't like being punished. So I told myself when I was younger, not recently, told myself that when I had my own children... I would never embarrass them, and I would never punish them. I was just going to let them eat ice cream all the time, stay up as late as they wanted, and give them everything that they wanted. I was certain of this as a child. Now, my kids are are here today, so you can ask them how that worked out. It didn't. It didn't. Um, I'm sure I've done plenty to embarrass them, and they were punished when they did things that were wrong. I mean, can you imagine having your dad come up on a stage and speak to a bunch of people every week and not know what what story he might tell about you? Uh, That is my kid's life, and so pray for them. Uh, (laughs) But perspective changes when you grow up. Right? Perspective changes when you grow up. Uh, it, it changes when you have your own children. It changes when different things in life happen. And my perspective has changed on a lot of things as I've gotten older. For instance, I used to believe that I'd always be healthy and fit as an adult. Because, yeah, that's, it is funny. Um, because, because when uh, I, was, I was young, my metabolism was so fast and good, whatever, that I could eat whatever I wanted all the time and not, you know, gain weight. And so I just assumed, right, that that's how it was always going to work. For those of you who are young out there, this is what happens, okay? <laughs> Eventually, you just can't eat anymore, have any fun. Right, Buff? Right, all right. It did not work out like I thought. And, and when I was younger, I used to judge people for a lot of things. I used to look at the things that people did, and I used to judge them for a lot of things. And when I gained some perspective and got a little older, and grew a little in the Lord, I realized that not everything that I was blaming people for was necessarily their fault. Not everything that I was blaming people for or judging people for was right that I should judge them. It's, it's just a little too easy to think about what you would do if you were in some situation that you've never been in. Someone else's situation, right? I've watched people over my life who were very pietistic or moralistic, which basically means they were judgmental. Uh, and 
and including myself over the years, and as they've had more experiences, they've met more people, as they've loved more people, as they've, as they've uh, been in the world longer and seen the things that God's doing in people's lives, they've changed, they've grown, they've gotten some perspective. And I'm telling you this because we're going to get in, into an issue today that by God's grace and mercy, I personally have not dealt with in my life. Uh, but many of my brothers and sisters in this room have, or those listening or watching online have. Um, I can't tell you how many times this week I said to my wife, uh, Tiffany, I said, I do not want to preach on this passage. I, I just don't want to. I, I don't want to preach on this, on this passage. Uh, I don't want to have to deal with it. Um, but I love the scripture. I love the scripture, and every word of scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. This is what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good action. Now, I believe that with all my heart, and my vocation, my calling, is to preach the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm going to try to do today, and that means that we take the scripture as it is, and we don't pass over the difficult stuff, and we don't soften it. We don't put a gloss on it. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. The scripture shows us the perfect law of the Lord. And when we look into the perfect law of the Lord, we see ourselves. We see our rebellion. We see our failures. And we realize that we're poor in spirit, that we might be blessed to be poor in spirit. And we mourn our sin and rebellion, that we might be blessed as those who mourn. We also see the gospel, the good News that forgiveness is here in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. He died for our sins and paid for them all. All. And God raised him from the dead. That proved that Jesus was God and proved that he has the power to give us a true hope. That although when we look into the scripture, we find ourselves lacking, we find ourselves wanting, we find that we've missed the mark, that we don't measure up, that the gospel is there more powerful than any of that, saying that our sins can be removed as far as east is from west. But we got to do both. To realize our need for God, we have to take the scripture as it comes. We have to take the scripture as it comes. We have been in this series called Right Side Up. We've been studying the words of Jesus Christ in what many call the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7. And, and Jesus Christ is showing us what it looks like to live the kingdom life. A right side up life. Making the distinction between the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the upside down world. And showing us what it looks like to live right side up, live that kingdom life. Today, we are going to study vows and oaths. Specifically, marriage vows, and then oaths or truth-telling. So let's pray first and we'll get in the word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the sunshine. Man, we've had a lot of sunshine, Lord. What a blessing. You know how much I like the sunshine and not so much the clouds. So I appreciate that, Lord. Uh, I appreciate just the beauty of who you are and what you've done. I appreciate the beauty of the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would, would study this morning and that you would draw us closer to you through your word. In your name, amen. All right, Matthew, chapter 5, verses 31 to 37. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Hopefully it's light enough in here that you can read it. I got called to account on that today. That's okay, though. It's true. You need to be able to read it. It says this, Furthermore, 
It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. A couple of things before we kind of get started to give us some context for the passage. The last two messages and studies that we've done, Jesus was quoting Laws that were from the, the Ten Commandments, what some people call the Decalogue. If you want to use that in conversation, you'll sound really fancy. The Decalogue. The Ten Commandments. Uh, and they were these. Uh, Exodus 20, 13-14. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Those were the two that we've gone through so far. Now we're moving from the Ten Commandments into other civil laws from the Old Testament that people were using and making a lot of rules about. You know how they used to do that. They'd take one rule and they'd make a whole set of rules. We still do that today. You know, some of you know that I'm, a, I'm an attorney. We take the law that's there, and then we have 150 cases about it. Why? Because we get paid more if we have a lot of cases. So that's just, that's how that works, right? Um, but that's just kind of the way the law works. That's what people had done. Now, we're moving to this, to this other thing. And, and so as a result of that, uh, we're taking this one passage. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy. And then a lot of things were happening with it. Let's look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Okay. This passage is talking about getting the divorce, the person goes and gets married to somebody else or they get divorced or their husband dies and they come back and marry this other person. That passage was used to establish an entire set of rules about divorce in Israel among the Hebrews, okay? Uh, and there were two schools of interpretation that were prevalent and popular among the Pharisees at the time, okay? The first was the Shammai school. They had, a, they had a certain interpretation. And the second was the Hillel school. They had a certain interpretation of what this meant. And the differences between those schools were found in the way that each school interpreted the word uncleanness. Okay, you can give her, if you find an uncleanness, you can give her a certificate of divorce. So the Shammai interpretation thought that uncleanness referred only to adultery. That you could, you could get a divorce from your wife if she committed adultery. That was the only way you could get a divorce. That was their interpretation. The Hillel school of thought said that uncleanness could be basically almost anything. Almost anything could be considered uncleanness. So if a woman burnt the pot roast, now I'm not making this up. If she burned the food, that might be enough for you to divorce her over, okay? Or maybe somebody moved in next door and you like her better. That would be something that would be worth uncleanness, okay? So they were, they were basically making it so that uncleanness could be almost anything. So you could divorce your wife at, at your pleasure, at your will, willy-nilly. 
okay? Um, in, other, in order to understand the context of what's happening here in this passage, we have to understand uh, what was going on historically, or we're not going to understand what Jesus is saying here. First of all, marriage was different then in a lot of ways. Uh, first, it appears that generally the husband was the only one who could institute a divorce, right? So that was not a great arrangement for the women of that time, as you can imagine. Not a great thing to be in, in, as somebody's wife. They can divorce you for burning the pot roast. You can't do anything. Not a good thing, okay? Um, and we know that Jesus cared about women. He cared about women as much as he cared about men. And so one of the things that's happening here is he's addressing that issue. Right, And we see that actually in several of the, of the passages that we've been reading and that we'll read, they really do, they really are there partially to protect women who had been oppressed under this system, who are being treated poorly under the system. The second thing to notice about this passage is that uh, this teaching on marriage and, and the vows that you would take in marriage and divorce and so on, and the next part of the, the scripture that we read on oaths actually are very connected to one another. And it may seem strange to you that they are. Okay, but I believe that the whole Sermon on the Mount flows together, and particularly uh, the oath, the truth-telling oath part, and the part about divorce and marriage, which has to do with vows, I believe are very intertwined, okay, because marriage involves vows and then oaths, and they have some similarities to them. Um, in fact, if you really look back, the passage on anger and lust also would go into this section and really be connected to all of these that are happening. These are not just kind of one-offs, a bunch of separate teachings that they sort of patched together that Jesus said. He said the things he said in the order he said them for a reason. They're in the scripture the way they are for a reason. So let's talk about what Jesus said about divorce and remarriage first, okay? We just studied about the Hillel school, right? They interpreted uncleanness that you could get a divorce for almost any reason, almost any reason at all. And this was the popular view, go figure, among the male Pharisees. Um, surprised? Uh, and so we see this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount as partially as a reaction against what's happening in the culture at the time. And later in Matthew, we actually see the Pharisees coming to Jesus and testing him on this teaching. This is what they say. This is Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? See, that's the Hillel school interpretation. For just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. Okay, first question. What is a eunuch? Ready to feel comfortable, gentlemen? A eunuch is a man that has been castrated. 
That's what a eunuch is, okay? For those of you who were here for our study last week, we talked for a second about Origen, who was part of the early church in the second, third century. And he was believed by many to have had himself castrated, went to a doctor and had himself castrated because of this passage. That's what a lot of people believe happened with him. Uh, and so, <laughs> hang on a second, I lost my place. Start talking about castration, things get a little funky around here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who missed last week, by the way, see what happens when you miss? You miss stories about people getting castrated and everything else. Don't miss. Anyway, Jesus is not advocating castration. For those of you who are nervous, you can breathe. That's not what he's advocating. He's responding to his disciples' question, or rather statement, that it's just better not to marry if these are the rules on divorce and it's such a serious sin. Because what do they know? Being in a marriage, being in that relationship, it's difficult. It's difficult. And so if, if divorce means you're an adulterer and she's an adulterer and I'm an adulterer and everyone's an adulterer, well, then it's better just not to marry is what they're saying. Jesus is saying, as Paul also says, that some people are called to be celibate. Some people are called not to marry or not to marry right now. Sometimes we can focus so much on marriage in the church. We do a lot of like marriage conferences and that's good. All that stuff is good. But we sometimes leave single people feeling like second class citizens. Feeling like, well, what's, you know, everything's about teaching marriages and marriages and marriages, and I'm not married. Well, here's the deal. Much the opposite is true, okay? Single people are not second-class citizens. Whether it's singleness and celibacy for a time, or singleness and celibacy for life, it's actually a high calling for those who are called to it. It's actually quite a high calling. Partially because singleness for a believer demands celibacy. And celibacy can be very difficult. It can be very difficult, especially in light of the commands that we studied last week concerning lust. Celibacy requires not just the physical, but even your, your mental, your heart, the whole thing being pure and resisting things like pornography and masturbation and all of those kinds of things. So it's tough to be single. It's actually quite a high calling. But what about those who have been married and those who have been divorced, and those who have been divorced and remarried, and all of that. First, I want to make sure that we're all in the same boat and on the same page. Because it could be easy to, be, to say to yourself, well, I'm married, and I haven't been divorced, and so this really doesn't apply to me, right? But let me, let me help you out for a second. Marriage is the one flesh union between a man and a woman. When married people have sex for the first time after their marriage, we say they have consummated the marriage. And the word consummate means more than just married people having sex. Here's the definition from merriamwebster.com. Consummate. It's a transitive verb, if you're wondering. To make marital union complete by sexual intercourse. Consummate a marriage. Here's what else it means. To finish. To complete. To make perfect. To achieve. To become perfected. It means to finish. To complete, you've perfected something, you've made it perfect. So sex, this is really important. Sex is the implied completion of marriage vows. Whether it happens inside of marriage or it happens outside of marriage. When you have sex, you are implying the completion of marriage vows. Let's read what the, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's the thing. You become one flesh with anyone with whom you've had sex. That's what scripture says. That's what the scripture says. So if you've had sex with someone and you were not married to them, you basically divorced them. That's basically what happened. Because you perfected in your body what should have been a marriage. Now, listen carefully to what I'm saying. You were not married to that person. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. Because you didn't make marriage vows, you didn't go through that process. But the heart of the matter is that you took part with your body in becoming one flesh with another person. That's why it is so serious. So serious. A lot of people think it's just not a serious thing anymore. That is crazy that in 2019, I'd still be talking about people having sex outside of marriage. Well, guess what? I talk about it because scripture's serious about it. It's a big deal. Now, when we add to the study we had last week, where Jesus tells us that lust is adultery in the heart, if you've lusted, you've committed sexual immorality. So because we're talking about sexual immorality, at least at the level of our hearts, many more people than just those who have gone through a divorce, a legal divorce or remarriage, many people, including myself, have essentially been divorced or done something very similar to that in our own hearts. So I just want to make sure we're all in the same boat for those of you who have not been divorced but have had some sexual sin or some sexual immorality or whatever it is. We're all in the same boat here. We all need to understand what Jesus is saying. Let me be clear about one thing. God hates divorce. He hates it. He hates divorce. Listen to the book of Malachi, chapter 2, 13 through 16. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? having a remnant of the spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. So the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. He hates sexual immorality. Whether you legally divorce your husband or your wife, or you sleep with someone that is not your husband or wife because you're not married, or you are married and you commit adultery, all of that, you are dealing with the other person treacherously. In all of those cases, you're breaking God's good plan for marriage and for sex within marriage. Now, 
there are the easy cases and there are the hard cases when it comes to divorce. Easy cases and hard cases. really not any easy, but somewhat easy biblically, okay? If your spouse is cheating on you sexually, they're sexually unfaithful to you, you are permitted to divorce. Jesus says this clearly. You're permitted to divorce. Recognize one thing about this. It's a may, not a shall. It's a may, not a shall. As an attorney drafting contracts, I use the words may and shall very differently and very specifically. If I say you may do something, it means you may, you can, you, you are allowed to. If I say you shall do something, it means you have to do this thing. In the case of divorce after unfaithfulness, it's a may. It's an allowance. It's something that you can do. If your spouse is unfaithful, you may divorce. However, many a marriage, many a marriage has been gloriously healed after unfaithfulness. Many a marriage. We've seen it here in this church and all over Christ's church. God can heal anything. So if reconciliation is possible, I would go for that. I would go for that if it's possible. Sometimes it's not. And I understand that. You may divorce in those cases. The other situation that's relatively easy is the case of the unbelieving spouse who will not live with a believer as a married couple. All right, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? I believe that this passage covers where one spouse abandons the other. It's not much you can do about that, right? Somebody files for divorce from you. Somebody leaves, takes off, is gone. Somebody will not live with you because you're a believer. I believe it covers that. I also believe it covers issues like abuse of the other spouse, things like that. Where you, you to say I'll live with you, but I'm going to beat you up isn't living with somebody, right? Say I'll live with you, but I'm going to abuse you in some way. That's not living with somebody. That's abuse, right? So I think it covers those kinds of cases. Other cases on divorce are more difficult. And here's the deal. We could walk through it. I could walk through this for a long time, going through specific cases and deciding whether they were acceptable reasons for divorce. But we're not going to do that. Because here's the thing. I'm not here to provide you with a bunch of rules and a bunch of cases. That's not what we're about here. If anyone is struggling with this issue, they're struggling about a, a, a marriage that they got divorced or they're in a marriage that's, that, that's not looking great, whatever, one, myself or one of our other pastors or leaders here would be happy to sit down with you and talk through that. Okay, we can talk through those things, but I'm not gonna go through a bunch of specific cases because at the end of the day, like everything else in this section, this is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. We studied last week and I said that marriage, people say their marriage is broken when that, what they really mean is their spouse is broken, right? They say their marriage is broken, but they really mean their spouse is broken. Divorce happens long before courtrooms. Long before courtrooms are entered, long before assets are divided and parenting plans are entered into and whatever. The divorce happens long before that. It begins with the breaking of vows. The breaking of vows. Now, what's a vow? This is, this is important. A vow 
really simple, a promise to God. It's what a vow is, promise to God. I'm gonna try to make this as simple as possible. We vow when we promise something to God. Any of you who have done premarital counseling with me, um, some of you have done that, you know that we're gonna hit the issue of vow right up front. Right up front. Oh, you wanna get married? Let's talk about what a vow means. I want people who are getting married to understand what they're actually doing. What they're actually doing. Marriage vows, like all vows, all promises to God, are incredibly serious. They're incredibly serious things. You are literally promising to God what you will do for this person, right? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Now, lately, a lot of people have started writing their own vows, right? They want to write their own vows. Here's a, here's a few I found on the internet. I vow to protect you from spiders as long as we both shall live. I promise to unclog the tub, even though only one of us has long hair. <clears throat> Tiffany. I vow never to steal your covers unless you're hogging them. I vow to always let you have the last blueberry pancake. My personal favorite. Now that we have gotten skinny for this wedding, let's get real fat together. <laughs> There's only one of us in my marriage that made that vow. And, and I keep my vows, people, okay? Um, these are funny and they're cute and whatever, but they miss the importance of what's happening at a wedding. They just miss it. If you do not understand your vows and what a vow is, that you're promising something to God and you don't take them seriously up front, let me just tell you something. Divorce becomes a lot easier later because you haven't understood what you're doing. You haven't understood what you've entered into. Divorce happens because richer was fine, but poorer is not so great, right? Divorce happens because health is all good, but sickness, no bueno, right? Not great. It happens because we don't love, because we don't cherish, we don't do all these things until death do us part. That's why divorce happens. Marriages break down because we are not honest to God with our promises. We do not keep our promises to him. That's why marriages break down. For those who are married and struggling, let me give you a little something. Think about your promise your promises to God that you made. Think about your promises to God and start loving and cherishing. Make sure that you are fulfilling your vows. Because if you fulfill your vows well, you might be surprised at the response of your spouse. You start loving, honoring, cherishing, doing all that kind of stuff, you might be surprised at what happens in that relationship and how it might blossom. For those of you who are divorced, and you and your spouse have not remarried. Hey, maybe, depending on the reason that you had a divorce, maybe it's worth looking at the opportunity of reconciliation. It's a possibility. For those of you who are divorced and remarried, if your marriage ended because of your sin, because you didn't keep your vows, confess your sin, repent, and keep your vows to your new spouse. If your marriage ended and you had a true biblical reason to divorce, it was an allowable reason, I believe that you're free to remarry, that you're not committing adultery, okay? There are those who disagree. There are those who disagree, I'll just tell you, out in Christendom. Um, by Christendom, I just mean in the church, people who are Christians. There are some who believe that 
You ought not to get divorced for almost any reason at all, um, maybe adultery, but if so, you should stay unmarried forever if you get divorced. I don't believe that for, for a number of reasons. I just don't think that the whole testimony of Scripture suggests that, okay? And some people in the church really do treat divorced people, people who have been through a divorce, horribly. To even say divorced people is to put a label on people in, in, in some way. I don't talk about people with their other sin and say, oh, liared people. Oh, people who did this thing, gossipers or whatever. We don't name anybody else by, by that type of thing. But with divorce, for some reason, we put a stigma on people. And I don't think that's appropriate. Not appropriate. I just don't think it's godly. I don't think it's biblical to look at that something that may have been a sin, may not have been a sin, by the way, as we've discussed, in their past and somehow judge them for it in the future. There are people who, uh, who will not let people be in positions of leadership in the church, who won't let them do certain things if they've ever been through a divorce. Okay, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe any of that. What I do believe is that God hates divorce. What I do believe is that you ought not to get divorced unless there's a may that allows you to do so and that those are very limited. Those are very limited. That if you have been divorced in the past and it was as a result of you breaking vows, that that's a sin that should be confessed and repented. But that if you've been remarried, I don't expect you to, nor do I think it's right, that you would, okay, well, I gotta leave my new husband and I gotta go back to the old husband because that wasn't a good marriage and I didn't do the right thing. No, I don't think any of that. God can restore, God can heal anything. Okay, but that doesn't mean that divorce is no big deal. Just so that you're aware, if you come to me and tell me that you have fallen out of love with your wife, okay, and you tell me that you're going to divorce her because God wants you to be happy, you're not going to get a wink and a nod from me. You're going to get church discipline. That's how that's going to go down. Because it's a sin. It's a real sin. It's a serious sin. The heart issue is that you ought not to divorce. You ought not to divorce except where God has allowed it. And if you have divorced for reasons other than that, then like any other sin, you confess and you repent. If you're divorced and remarried, you've confessed and repented or you, or you weren't in sin, but you've confessed and repented about vows that you've broken in your past marriage, I don't believe that you're an adulterer. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I could be wrong, but that's not what I think is happening here. I disagree with those who, who interpret it that way. But divorce is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And anyone in this room who has been through a divorce can tell you just how big of a deal it is. It's devastating. A lot of people describe it like losing a body part. It's, it, it really, really, really is damaging. And God, that's why God hates it. That's why he talks about it in the way that he does. Because when you become one flesh with someone, and that gets ripped apart, it doesn't come without damage. It doesn't come without damage. But I want what Jesus Christ wants. I want those who are called to singleness and celibacy to be supported by the church in prayer, in strong relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ. That means if you're married and you have people around you in the church that are single, they're not married. They don't have as many people to hang out with as you. You've always got that other person to hang out with, whether you like it or not. Grab a single person. Bring them into your world. They're, they have a high calling. It's tough for them, in this world especially, to be single and celibate, which is our command as single people. It's hard. Support them. I also want those who have made vows to God in marriage to keep those vows and recognize the seriousness of breaking those vows. Recognize what kind of a sin it is to lie to God. Not cool. Not okay. 
I want people who are married to be sexually faithful, to be emotionally faithful, to love and to cherish. Man, if we could just get that, the love and cherish thing, half, if not more, of the marriage counseling and the things like that that I run into just wouldn't happen if people were loving and cherishing. That can cover an awful lot of annoying habits, you know, and things like that. Loving and cherishing is a big deal. Also, you should have a lot of sex. Just, I'm just telling you. Guys are like, this is the best sermon ever. <laughs> it's true. I'm not making that one up. That's in the Bible too. I didn't, I didn't read this. I'm not reading that passage today, but I'll just tell you. It's good for you. It's good for you. Um, I want those who have passed sin in marriage to stop living in guilt and shame over it, if that's you. Receive and accept God's mercy and grace and move forward hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That's your duty. Not to act like the cross wasn't powerful enough to cover the sin of a failed relationship or sexual immorality or whatever it is that we've been going through. Because these are tough things. Looking into the law is tough on this one. Looking into the scripture is tough on this one. It shows us who we are. But here's the deal. You are not to live in the shame and regret of your past. To do so is to say that the cross wasn't enough, but we sing sometimes here, the cross was enough. You better believe it was enough. You better believe it was enough. I don't want any of my brothers and sisters living in shame and regret for their past when my Lord Jesus Christ has paid for your sin and he's paid for mine. We don't have to live in that. The point of this is not to shame people or to judge people or to make people feel bad. The point is to say, let's confess, let's repent, let's turn away. That's what repent means. Let's turn away from that and let's move forward in righteousness. Not looking back, not feeling shame, the Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind. You notice he didn't say, I forgot what is behind. He says, forgetting what is behind. Because it's an active thing. Every time that Satan wants to come to you and bring your shame, he's an accuser. He wants to bring your shame. He wants to bring your past. He wants to bring your regrets up. Don't allow it. Forget it. Forgetting what is behind and pressing forward. That's who we are. That's who we are. Now that brings us to the last section of our study for today, and that is truth-telling. Oaths and truth-telling. If I could get this to open back up, technology. Matthew 5, 33-36, we read it earlier. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, the first thing some of you are thinking, some of you are like, wait a second, wait a minute. What do you mean I can't make one hair white or black? I've been making my hair black since my body's been making it white, right? <laughs> we know, we know. It's cool. I would say it looks totally natural, but I'm literally preaching online right now, so I'm not going to do that. Um, yeah, I know. He's not talking about, Jesus is not teaching about coloring our hair, even though it is a form of deception. No, I'm kidding. It's not a big deal. Just kidding. People are like, oh, great. Even that now? No, I'm not. It's, it's good. Back in those days, there were all kinds of oaths being taken, and there were all kinds of rules. There was a whole section of rules about oaths, okay? If you swore by the temple... You didn't have to keep that promise, but if you swore toward the temple, 
you had to keep that promise, right? There was all kinds of stuff. Listen to what Jesus says to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, 60 through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Some people were making oaths and it was basically like crossing your fingers. I swear by the altar, but I didn't swear by the gift on the altar, so you can't hold me to it. There was that kind of stuff going on. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was just a way of lying. Now, some Christians have taken this passage to uh, believe that all oaths are wrong, that you can't take any oaths. The Quakers are a specific example of that. They actually brought in uh, the idea of affirming instead of swearing. So like when you put your uh, hand up in the courtroom and they say, do you swear to tell the truth? A lot of courts will say, do you swear or affirm tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Okay? And so they would, they would say, is, I'm not going to swear, I'm just going to affirm that I always tell the truth. That's what they would say. And it's interesting. Okay? That's, that's the way some Christians take it. But what is an oath and how is it different than a vow? First, an oath is a promise to somebody else with God as your witness. A vow is a promise to God. An oath is a promise to somebody else with God as your witness. Okay? You've heard that God is my witness, blah, 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 blah. That's an oath. That's an oath, okay? We read a similar command about oaths in James 5.12. It says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. What does this mean? It's about the heart. Surprisingly enough, it's about the heart. Who has to take oaths? Who has to swear they're telling the truth all the time? Liars, right? Liars. Liars have to swear oaths because the assumption is that without something else, more than their word just to hold them, they'll lie. Ask yourself this question. Would you believe a person more who was a dishonest person normally but took an oath or a person who was regularly honest and did not take an oath? You're going to believe the honest person. You're going to believe the honest person. Here's the deal. Surprising or not to you. Uh, A liar will lie whether they take an oath or not. They will. Trust me. I'm a lawyer. It happens. Okay? Liars will lie whether they take an oath or not. But God always cares that we tell the truth. He always cares that we tell the truth. We've gotten so used to lying in our culture that it's not even looked at as that big of a deal anymore. Right? Our friends lie. Our political leaders lie. Even our religious leaders lie sometimes. Many of us justify lies by characterizing them as little white lies. It's just a little white lie, right? We don't do that with any other sin. It was just a little pink murder, right? It wasn't like a big murder. It's just a little green theft. That one makes sense because money's green. But with lies, we somehow think that we're really not hurting anybody if they're small enough. We are. We are. We are treating the person that we are lying to like a thing instead of a person. We are treating God's commands with disdain. And we are making ourselves untrustworthy 
We're breaking ourselves when we lie. Here's the thing. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's in John 14, 6. There is nothing false in him. God is the truth. If we're people of God, we want to be people of the truth. There is no place in the life of a believer for dishonesty. There is no place in the life of a believer for lies. The father of lies is the devil. That's where lying started. Right there in the garden. That's where lies come from. Lies have no place in the life of a believer. When we tell the truth, we're being like Jesus. We're being like God. We're living in truth, and he is truth. When we tell a lie, we're being like the devil. It's that simple. Maybe that helps you a little bit the next time you want to bend the truth. Next time you want to cover over a sin, a mistake, or whatever. When you lie, you aren't being like Jesus. There's only one other way to be. That's like the devil. You don't want to be like that. I could spend a lot of time on lies, but it is truly simple. Stop lying. For some of you, you need to hear this. Stop lying. Stop lying to your spouse. Stop lying to your boss. Stop lying to your friends and to your children and to your coworkers and whatever it is. Just stop. Stop. That is the heart of the command here. Be a truth teller. Be a truth teller. Be Christ-like. Live the kingdom of heaven life. Do not sit there and justify your dishonesty. Here's the thing. If you need a lawyer to tell you not to lie, you're in trouble, okay? Don't lie. Stop. I, you know, when I think about my relationship with my wife, there is probably, these passages are so important because there's probably nothing that has led more. And we have a, a fantastic marriage, not because we're so great, but because God is so great. But let me tell you, there's nothing that has made our marriage stronger than keeping our vows, especially sexual fidelity, and telling the truth to each other. Not having to sit here and think about the things that keeping my life straight. Her not having to sit there and think about keeping her life straight. Being honest. Some, you mess up, you take the blame. You don't lie about it, right? Sexual fidelity and honesty, that goes with loving and cherishing. You do those things, you're gonna have a strong relationship. Why? Because you're being like Christ, who should be the center of every relationship you have, but especially of your marriage. At the end of the day, divorce and lying are from the same heart place. They're from the same heart place. They're dishonesty to God in not keeping our marriage vows and dishonesty to others, to other people in lying. That's what they are. And praise God, he has provided grace for us in both. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be forgiven. We can be right today, right now. 1 John 1, 9, we read this last week, we're gonna read it again. Probably read it many times over the years, Lord willing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Some of us need to confess and repent today. It's just the way it is. Some of us need to put lies and dishonesty toward God and lies and dishonesty toward other people away from us today. That's where we need to be. We need to commit to being like Jesus, to being truth tellers and living the truth with the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. That's who we need to be today. Some of us don't know Jesus. 
Some of us don't know Jesus. Some of us aren't walking with Jesus. Here in this room, listening online, here's the good news. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For some of you, that's good news today. For all of us, it's good news. But for some of us, you've never done that. This is the day. This is your day. Do not wait another day to start following Jesus. Do not wait another day to follow Jesus. Do not spend another day in sin as a rebel against God. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, it really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.